and I'll sit down and play a James Taylor song for five minutes and my anxiety dissipates. So, and I think that's biblical. Uh, perfect love casts out all fear. And I, I think when you do something that's life-giving, you're getting in touch with the love of God because it's not earnest, it's display. And that's a way to displace our anxieties. Welcome, welcome, welcome back to the podcast. Amidst the disruption that you are living and leading through right now, guys, there's a ton of anxiety right now. Anxiety is spinning all around our culture. But the question is, what does that even mean? What does that word anxiety mean? How is it different from fear? How is it different from loss? And we're going to talk about just that. The interesting thing about leaders, and all of you listening are leaders, you are leading other people influencing others, whether it's family, whether it's a team, an organization, you name it, you are leading. And we are having to process our own anxiety and help lead other people through theirs at the same time. Leadership was complex before COVID. And let me just say, it is really complex now. And today's interview is practical. We are going to go over that idea of anxiety. What is happening in us? How do we recognize when we are feeling anxiety? What exactly is anxiety? And of course, what are some practices to be able to manage this anxiety? Because we can't defeat it, but we can manage it. And I brought my friend Steve Cuss onto the podcast. He wrote a book called Managing Leadership Anxiety. You can hear his whole story around anxiety. You can hear a little bit of his background on it and an overview of the book in episode 26 of the podcast. So make sure to check that out and listen to that first. But this one is specifically, how are we feeling anxieties right now amidst COVID? How can we respond to those? What are some of the things that we're doing online um, because of our anxiety in that? What are some things that are not helpful? And of course, what are a few things that are helpful during this time? So Steve's become a good friend of mine. He's a pastor, but he's also a clinician, and he understands what's going on behind these forces of anxiety and he has the nature and the nurture. Steve is an incredible guy uh, with an incredible accent, I might add. It does not hurt to have an Aussie accent on here to listen to, but Steve knows what he's talking about and I think can really help us navigate as leaders this complex season. So enjoy this conversation on the anxieties we are feeling right now in this moment with Steve Cuss. Well, I've got my good friend, Steve Cuss, on the line today. Steve, thanks for joining us. Uh, you bet, Alan. You know, uh, I'll just say, this is your show and I'm already taking it over, so that's a bad sign. But, um, you know, one of my favorite things since my book came out and my own podcast is all the people I've gotten to meet and I've gotten to meet you through that. And it's just been a pleasure. So I know you're a huge asset to a lot of people. I, I just want your listeners to know, your coaching for me has been really invaluable as well. Your marketing work's been fantastic. So always a pleasure. Well, thanks. Yeah. thanks, man. You're, I really feel like there are good books and then there are really, really timely and good books. Your, your book was good and was certainly timely in the macro. We're feeling a <laughs> lot of anxiety, right? We are managing yeah. leadership anxiety, ours and theirs. And yet when it hit COVID, I literally have been thinking about so many of the things you've helped me identify anxiety in myself that I had no idea. So this moment today, I want to talk frankly about this. Um, we're here on the podcast. We're also broadcasting this over to the Right Side Up community, people that follow along who want to live right side up in an upside down world. I don't know how we do that 
without this serious um, blight of anxiety and just recognizing it in ourselves. So we're carrying it, we're seeing it in other people. So let's deep dive specifically uh, into that today. And so just to open it up wide, what are some of the common ways you see leaders responding out of anxiety during this COVID season? Yeah. Um, yeah. There's a lot of common ways leaders are responding. Pro- probably the, the most obvious way is just um, hyper productivity. Uh, probably what's going on, actually, most leaders are swinging wildly from hyper productivity to complete lack of productivity. Mm. But, you know, your average run of the mill type A driven leader, they're, they're most comfortable when they're in the driver's seat. And, you know, COVID being in the driver's seat right now makes us obviously incredibly uncomfortable. So we, we do tend to go to our comfort place or our happy place. And so for a lot of leaders, for better or worse, uh, that's content creation. More, more emails, more communication, more product. All right. So I've definitely seen that. Like when COVID started, man, oh man, Alan, my, I, I bet my email inbox is blown up almost fourfold would be my yep. estimate. Yeah. Yep. How about you? Is the same? Oh, same, same. And it was for a while and there was such quick resource production, but the reality is things were changing so quickly. We weren't talking about re-entry. We didn't even know what was happening to us. So um, I think that that's, again, it's good. It just, I think is a response to, I don't even have that much time to take in that much information. And so I think there's been content creation, but there's also been content consumption. I think if I could learn enough about what's going on, maybe I could control this situation. Would that be another way that you've seen it manifest? Yeah, you know, I've been, I've been trained in family systems theory and one of the great uh, systems theorists, Edwin Friedman, he's probably the most famous one. He talks about the fallacy of data and that when we live in a data-obsessed age, when we're anxious, one of the ways you know you're anxious is you want more information before you proceed and make a decision. Yeah, I do think that's it. The, the content consumption is almost more of a concern for me than the content creation Let people create, you know, and particularly a lot of these people that are trying to help us, they really are good people doing helpful work. But yes, for your anxious leader that really believes that one more webinar is going to make them okay, that's where it gets deadly, I think. Mm. And I've heard that phrase, procrastination through education. And to think instead of acting or making my next decision, or clarifying the situation, um, I'm actually just going to see 15 different people's takes on it. And certainly that's, that's tough. What are some other ways you've observed leaders? By the way, um, Steve came on episode 26. So the whole message of the book's there. We're going to deep dive um, specifically right now into COVID stuff. And you are a pastor, you're a practitioner. So you're not speaking from some high and mighty stage. You're literally processing this stuff, trying to live it out yourself. So I just want to give you that uh, platform to say, you know, you have muddy boots from the trenches right now. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, I'm literally crying after, like, we had a staff meeting today. I get off the, I'm trying to hold it together in our staff meeting. I'm just missing our team. Uh, I was telling you, Alan, before we hit record, we, we farewelled one of our best leaders on our church staff who contributed in a way that is very difficult to replace. We had to farewell her over Zoom. Man, so I am absolutely in the trenches. I'm, I'm feeling all the feels. I think another way uh, that leaders are uncomfortable with is we are, we are having wild emotional swings. Mm-hmm. I know in my own life, uh, I've had to get used to, I, I'm generally a pretty steady guy, and I've had to get used to waking up and, and having a mood descend upon me that's unfamiliar, which uh, depression and paranoia even, 
Yeah. Um, and so I've had these really great days and then I've had entire days where I just literally feel like I'm in a fog. So I think, I think it is a good season for leaders to pay extra attention to their own well-being. Uh, it, particularly if you want to be more efficient, you know, there are a stream of leaders that say, I don't want to, I don't want to dive into that hippie mamby pamby feelings thing. <laughs> uh, I would just say, if you want to be more productive, um, getting in touch with your own emotions is actually a way to be more productive. But having said that, uh, it's okay to take a day or a half day or an hour and realize we're not going to be as productive. I have, I have really struggled to write sermons with four other humans in the house. Mm, uh, it's yeah. just, it's keenly made me aware of how much I need silence and quiet. Um, and these are delightful humans. These are actually humans right. that are some of my favorite humans, but uh, I'm not as productive as I was pre COVID for sure. And even just to say these things, guys, I think is, is healing to just kind of have a conversation here with a friend and go, man, fellow strugglers, uh, that has been, I mean, it is, it is nice to walk outside of the house to breathe a little bit. And I have little kids, you don't any longer. And I mean, just, it is, it is a strange, the number one word I've heard is disorienting. Yeah. And so at first it was, this is weird. I don't know how to react. Then it was disorienting. I don't know how to place this. Um, and obviously some expectations I think we're putting on ourselves that are completely unrealistic, um, during this time. Uh, so talk a little bit about recognizing our anxiety. Me and many others would say, I'm not anxious. Yeah. I'm a relaxed, you know, I'm to use Friedman. I'm a non-anxious presence. No, I'm chill. The reality is we're not where you said we're usually the last person to see it. If we're a leader in the room, ouch, other people see it long before we do. So what are, why is it so hard to recognize in ourselves? And then what are a couple ways we can recognize it? Oh, it's a great question. And it's a, it's a big question. So I'll try to categorize it. But, but in short, I, I think those leaders who say they're not anxious people, they're only seeing anxiety as worry or fear. And it's true. There are leaders that simply don't worry very much and are generally not very afraid. I had actually put myself in that camp. I'm a highly anxious person but it takes a lot to get me fearful. I'm generally mm. confident and optimistic about the future, even in Interesting COVID. difference to pull that apart, but I think super helpful, Steve. Yeah. So anxiety is a big word. Uh, the, the study of anxiety that I focus on, because this is the anxiety that I believe all leaders carry, is a type of anxiety called chronic anxiety. And chronic anxiety shows up after you don't get what you believe you need. So, for example, if a leader needs to feel productive to feel okay, and then COVID comes along and they're not being as productive, whatever happens next is what anxiety looks like. And that could look like an anger outburst, uh, hyperproductivity. It could look like laying on a couch and binging Netflix. So most people I talk to, probably 85, 90% of people I, I work with are very aware that they're anxious. For the 10 or 15 that aren't, What you can do is ask someone you love and who loves you, how do you know I'm anxious? Mm -hmm. And if you're a safe person, I guarantee they know you're anxious. Um, If you have young kids in the house, like down to the age of seven or eight, you can actually ask your seven or eight-year-old, hey, when mommy or daddy is anxious, how do you know? And they'll say, oh, goodness, like I try to talk to you, but I have to call your name a few times, you know, whatever it is. Yep. So yeah, first of all, a leader can become hyper aware of the things that we believe we need that we don't really need. Productivity, being respected, being the smartest person in the room. There's literally 50, I mean, literally 50 different triggers. Uh, But the other thing, Alan, is a lot of anxiety is generated 
environmentally. So it's not because of some false need we have. It's because of the situation we're in. Last night, I was communicating to a friend of mine in Nashville. He's hosting these. He's a musician. Of course, all his income's gone away. All his touring's been canceled. And he's hosting these delightful um, uh, webinars called uh, Happy Hour. Mm. And you just go into Facebook, and there he is. And oftentimes, his wife, they're both singer-songwriters. Well, last night, the poor guy canceled because of a tornado. They're out of electricity. So wow. here you have a guy who's dealing with COVID and then a tornado and, and he's texting us from the dock saying, sorry, I have to cancel. That's environmental anxiety. That has nothing to do with right. his false needs. And yeah. so I, I think one of the surefire ways that we'll get anxious is either if we're grieving something that we've lost, grief always generates anxiety. And the second one is if, if you're in an ambiguous situation for any length of time, you're going to get anxious. All right. Let's talk about that. Let's drill yeah. down right there. Grief and loss. Just quickly, we've all lost something. It may yeah. feel stupid to us. I've had to grieve. I lost regularity, schedule, yep. travel gigs, income. vacation, yep. income, all of it. It's fair, right? We've lost it. But this long-term ambiguity, which... I laugh because we're all in that, right? We yep. just don't know. Everyone's talking about re-entry, new normal, all these things that are just, we just have no idea. So talk about that. How is that affecting us as leaders right now? Oh, it's, it's big time because ambiguity is a surefire generator of anxiety. We are in a, you know, it's a cliche, right? Historically unprecedented. That's what they say. <laughs> but it's true. Uh, and so here we are, not only are we in an ambiguous situation, but we, the ambiguity itself is shifting. And I think that's what you were just getting at is we're in lockdown. Now we're in minor reentry. So we keep entering these phases that we've never had to do before. So again, on our, on our staff meeting this morning, we're, we're saying to our team, look, we're going to open our building up next week, not this week, but it's not going to be for church services. So what is it for? And, and now we have what is both very exciting and daunting to figure out what do we do with 10 to 30 people at a time that's meaningful and powerful. And that's both exciting because God's in it and maybe, maybe people are actually going to grow in their faith in ways that they weren't before. But it's also exhausting because we just got done learning how to do online church. You know? So not only does ambiguity generate anxiety, but changing ambiguity. And then the, the third dynamic, not to really pile onto us, but um, uh, ambiguity of the time, like the marathon. Mm. It, it does actually remind me of when I was a hospital chaplain. Um, one of the chaplains that we worked with, we got really close. Her adult child was a quadriplegic. And uh, she came into work one day and, hey, how's your day going? And she said, oh, man, it's really hard. And let's call their son Matthew. She said, Matthew has the flu. And she said, you know, what happens when your child's a quadriplegic is you think that's the worst it gets. Nothing bad's ever going to happen because how could anything worse happen? And then he gets the flu. And I, I think that's a decent metaphor for the world we're in where we think we've managed it and then it gets piled on. Yeah. So I really do think this is the time for, for your listeners to, to realize we're in this for months and what are you doing to refresh yourself? Like, Alan, I know this is your sweet spot. This is what the work you do with your leaders is making sure they're well. And, and so as ambiguity continues, we have to put more time into wellness than we were even before. Yes. Yeah, that, you know, put your own oxygen mask on first. We've, we've heard it 
thousands of times probably at this point, but it's because it's effective. It's because it's a great analogy and we need it. And because of those mood swings you talk about, Steve, the reality is if we don't schedule the things in, if you wait to replenish until you feel like you're empty, it's too late. Too late. We actually need to build them in as disciplines. I don't know whether I'm going to be feeling top of the world tomorrow or I'm going to be feeling low. Um, Many times we can't feel these anxieties coming on, right? We don't, we don't even know how to name them. We don't even know why we're feeling the way we're feeling. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and some of them you can put in a lockbox. Sometimes you can have a mood come on you or you can notice your own anxiety and you can stop in the moment. You know, let's just take a classic example and get out and walk, walk in mm-hmm. nature and you can do something like that. But uh, what I've also found as I study the nature of anxiety, how it operates, how it comes on us and how we move through it, uh, sometimes what happens is we, we give people these tools and then they try them and it doesn't work and they get more anxious, you know, yeah. oh, I'm, it's almost like they're saying, well, now I'm a failure at one more thing. Mm. Uh, and so I, I found it really helpful in my coaching to, to talk to people about, you know, sometimes you can lockbox your anxiety. Other times it's more like a storm and people have really found this helpful let's say you wake up and you're feeling paranoid or, or you really have a fog or a depression on you and you, you try lockboxing and it doesn't work. Then it's helpful to say, okay, um, I'm in a storm and I still name it. And the way that works is, is a storm. Sometimes you can see it coming. Sometimes you're in it and it just shows up in a flash. Either way, it's going to go. It's not going to stay in you forever. And, and, one of the things I do, Alan, is I study and, and I name the messages that anxiety sends. I actually believe anxiety has its own gospel of bad news and doom. And one of the messages anxiety sends is it's always going to be this way. <laughs> yeah. It, it, it kind of makes you feel like you're, whatever you're in, you're in it forever. But when you start to realize, wait a minute, this is just a storm. Maybe I saw it coming. Maybe it just came upon me. But either way, it's going to be here. It's going to do some damage but it's going to leave. And what I found powerful in my own life is to say, oh, I'm in a storm right now. I'm actually feeling depression. Um, That's true. And it's going to stay and it's going to do some damage, but I'm going to watch it farewell as well. And Mm. particularly for people who really are grieving, whether you're grieving a literal loved one who died, which is absolutely the worst kind of grief, or maybe you're grieving, for example, your child's graduation. You know, they didn't get to have the big ceremony. That's equally valid grief. Yep. Just treating grief like a storm and letting it pass through you and then waving it farewell. And I got to say, Alan, if you're in grief, it's, you're going to go through about 5,000 storms. And so your resilience to see it coming, to own it, name it, and then let it move on is really essential, I think. And that's the word I'm hearing and we're going to hear more is resilient. Um, my brother just launched a podcast on that, our mutual friend, JR. Yeah, um, good man. And we've said it's it's the need of the hour, right? It's kind of the bounce back effect. I don't know how we do that without recognizing, without naming, seeing the forces at work within us. Steve, that's really helpful. I think that's one reason we get along so well. It's practical, right? Yeah. Did you ever dream of growing up someday and being the anxiety guy? Because I certainly didn't grow up of, you know, dream of being the burnout guy, right? Isn't, how do you feel it, about that? Isn't it crazy? Like I, I was a real sensitive kid. And then I think as a teenager, I overcompensated into my 20s and I really believed I was this confident, self-assured, successful person. And since about the age of 24, it was, that was actually half my life ago. 
I have embraced that I'm an anxious person. It's it's a much less exhausting way to live. I'll tell you that. Just to <laughs> yes. name it and, and do it. Yeah, that's right. And um, seriously, guys, go back and listen to episode 26 here on Right Side Up Leadership Podcast. Steve kind of shares his whole story. He talks about trauma. Um, and serious trauma. I mean, baptism by fire trauma, yeah. stepping into some of the worst of the worst. Uh, and so, Steve, I, I really feel like the way God has knit you together, nature, nurture your experiences, this is a moment really you have a lot to speak um, to us. And so we want to get this message out there more and more. Um, talk a little bit about how we as leaders often give trite answers. In the midst of other people's pain, we give trite answers. Why are we doing that? Yeah. Um, generally speaking, the reason we give trite answers is because we're anxious. We don't know how to sit in someone else's pain. And so as they're sharing their story with us, we, we can tend to shrink it down so that we can put some kind of a capper on it. Where I first started noticing this, Alan, is when I did, I used to do a lot of crisis intervention work in a large church in Las Vegas. And I noticed as the same people would come back through the office for help, I would get mad at them and I would get less patient with them because I, what, I thought they needed to get their life together. And it was a real epiphany to me. No, no, they're not the problem. I don't know how to sit with someone in ongoing long-term pain. Mm. And it's more about me than them. And that's when I started studying uh, that. And, and so just so often what happens with a leader is we're so productivity-minded that we, we almost literally feel like we're wasting time if we sit with someone. Or what we're not aware of is we don't know how to simply mourn with those who mourn. And so we, we listen and then we try to give like a, a, a prayer or, or sometimes that pithy answer is actually quoting scripture to somebody. And that's where I want to be careful. I don't want to say that always quoting scripture is a terrible thing. Absolutely not. I'm just saying before you quote that scripture, check your heart. Yeah. And why? Why am I doing this? Is it really for them? Do they really yeah. need to hear Philippians? Do not be anxious about anything. Probably not. Yep. Really, what they what they really need is to feel seen and to feel heard. And if you can simply, uh, actually, my wife has coached me in this because she's a therapist. What she does is she listens to people and then she tries to name what they're feeling for them, and that's how they feel loved. She'll, she'll listen to them as they, they dump all of this energy out on her and emotion. And she'll say, boy, it just sounds like you feel really lonely and alone right now, like no one understands. And they'll say, yes, that's it. Yes. And that's the grace of God coming through her. That's when people feel the incarnational presence of Christ. Yep. Whereas if she'd say, you know what, I, I'm sure that's rough, but hey, look on the bright side. You know, it's yeah, totally. not helpful well, at all. Again, naming things has so much power. Whether it's the emotions, the things that when they can come out into the light, and I say, if you can name the monster under the bed, it has less power. I give my, yeah. you know, my daughter to describe the scary monster under the bed, and it's not that scary. Yeah. But even if it's bad news, at least we can quantify it. And we say, as clarity goes up, overwhelm goes down. And I think that yeah. dark cloud, like you say, is this going to go on forever? No, it's not. Perhaps that phrase, this too shall pass, maybe that's yeah. why it's comforting, is yeah. to say, this sucks. Let's just acknowledge this sucks. It won't be this way forever. I'm not sure what it will look like next week or next month. Yep. Uh, and so maybe there's an in-between there. I also see a lot of inspirational words on social media and just kind of like banner flying and, you know, hey, and like, I don't even know what that means. It pumps me up for a second, but what? What is, you know? And so I think there's a lot of that we're throwing around 
And um, I just have to be, you know, I, I am tempted to want to relieve the situation yeah. so that I feel better because I want it to be done, whether it's with my kids or in that. So you were, you were reading our mail, Steve, you're talking our language. Yeah. It's, uh, I don't know if you've ever seen the, the Matt Damon movie, We Bought a Zoo. Um, yep. and, yeah. He lost his wife. My wife and I went to go see that movie right in the depths of our grief when we had lost a number of friends over f- a five-year period. We'd lost uh, five close friends in five years. It was really one of the lowest moments of our life. We went to that movie on a date, not realizing it's all about loss. And we mm. both pulled through the movie, but there's a moment where someone comes to the door and they hand him a lasagna and he opens the fridge door and he can't fit the lasagna in for all the lasagna. <laughs> yes. And so good. Uh, one of our most recent losses at that time, I remember one of the teenage boys saying to his mom, he'd lost his dad, one of our good friends. And the teenage boy said, do we, just because they brought it to us, do we have to eat it? Yeah. Because he lost his taste for lasagna. He had linked lasagna to death. Mm. And I think there is something to that. We're very well-meaning. It's, it's not from a bad heart. It's a good heart. But just to be able to sit with people in their pain and not do-do-do uh, is a gift. Yeah. There's a whole lot of do-do. When, yeah. Again, yeah. The, the phrase, yeah, w- what do you do when you don't know what to do? Yeah. And I think we have to examine our hearts. If you're listening, if you're watching, then it is, man, I go act. I go do something. And generally it makes me feel better because I'm more distracted on something else or I feel better about myself or whatever that is. So um, again, thanks for the free therapy session today. Uh, Steve, you're a good friend. Others are listening in the process, but just so timely and so needed because these forces are always at work. But man, turned up to 11 right now. I mean, the dial's insane, the amount of anxiety floating around. Yeah, that's right. What's, let's, let's talk about some practical next steps. Um, obviously, identifying. Let's start with the naming process to try to name some of our anxiety. How do we know um, what anxiety we're feeling? And then what are a couple really practical things um, that we can do in this season? Because leaders are getting worn down by this. Anxiety's taking a toll. Uh, so yeah. help us name it and then help us have just maybe a couple of practices to manage it. Yeah, that's a great question. So, so I'm, I'm yet to come across somebody who isn't able to learn to notice when they're anxious. It really is something every one of us can do. And you can begin by noticing your physiology. You can become a student of your own body. And it, it's not as weird as it sounds. And so anxiety typically manifests in a spinning mind, a racing heart or a tightening body. So I, I was interviewing someone the other day, and I, I'm trying to remember, I think it was on my podcast, I, I don't actually remember who it was, and he said, the shame floods down my back. I've never heard that before. I was like, tell me more about that. And he said, I feel the shame physically running through the muscles in my back. That's a person who's become hyper-attuned to their own body. Wow. For me, and it's my mind. I have go. 16 new ideas. I'm going to think my way out of this. My wife told me yesterday, she said, hey, I just need a little less of your ideation. It's wearing me out. <laughs> and so, so that, that would That's be a second good. thing is noticing the impact on others. And I said to my wife, I love you. I do not want to be someone that wears you out. So I'm going to work <laughs> on that. So that's the second thing is, is if you are in trusting relationships and you're a safe person, which is not automatically so, asking people how they know when you're anxious and the impact of your anxiety on them. It's a vulnerable conversation. It's a painful conversation. And after that, it's a freeing conversation. 
my, the last time my wife mm-hmm. and I had this conversation yep. was yesterday and she laid into, she shared some things with me on here's the impact of your actions on me. And we love each other profoundly. She's one of the most life-giving people in my life. And for me to be able to say, I receive that. I want to work on that. If you see me doing those things, because this is a long habit of mine, yep. please tell me and I want to work on it. You know, So that's the thing. And then the other thing, Alan, is uh, I, I do think we can tend to approach our anxiety earnestly. So I think there is real value in studying it. Uh, you talked about the monster. I, I've heard Kurt Thompson, he says, we name things to tame things. Yes. So if anxiety is this giant uh, confusion, by naming it, you actually get power over it. Yeah. able to break it down. But um, boy, oh boy, I think there's also a time to simply displace our anxiety with playfulness. And playfulness looks like anything from flirting with your loved one to a walk to fly fishing. What well, you know, having an, a, a concrete list of things that make you feel like a kid in the kingdom, things that when you do them, you lose track of time. Um, I, I call it a life-giving list, and it takes a while to make the list. I have, I want to. I think I have seventy-six things on my life-giving list that I can go to when I'm anxious. And of course, I can't go to all of them. Um, Assisi, Italy is on my life-giving list. It's, <laughs> I don't know that I'll ever get, I've been there one time. I don't know if I'll ever get back. But so is playing acoustic guitar. Um, and, and I'll sit down and play a James Taylor song for five minutes and my anxiety dissipates. So, And I think that's biblical. Uh, perfect love casts out all fear. And I, I think when you do something that's life-giving, you're getting in touch with the love of God because it's not earnest, it's display. And that's a way to displace our anxiety. So I'd encourage your folks to, to make a concrete list of the people and the activities that give them life, make them feel like a kid, connect them to God, and be pretty religious about trying different things. And some of them are fun, like going to grab an ice cream. I think the, the life-giving thing I did yesterday was I, had a, I, I ate a fudgesicle with my wife. We just sat Solid. together and ate a fudge popsicle. Awesome. But but the difference is like I it wasn't just a popsicle. We actually recognized this is holy ground. This is yeah. the fact that I can taste chocolate is itself a gift from God. And I'm gonna recognize it and and that that frees me from my anxiety a bit. That's so helpful. The life giving list, by the way, you can go uh and download that. Is that managing leadership Yeah, I think that'll get you there and also stevecuswords.com will get you there as well. Yeah, so there's actually a life-giving list PDF that you can download there. It's funny um, because I know that you shared from Lisa's life-giving list that old-school popcorn was one of those. So I was actually on um, over the hot coals on the fire the other day, old-school popcorn, and I thought, huh, this is on Lisa's life-giving list because it's so powerful, so distinct. I grew up on James Taylor, you know, so when I pick up my guitar, even for five or ten minutes, like you say, Ah, that was therapeutic. There's just something about it. And it feels weird when we say it to other people. I got to the mountains this weekend, sat next to a stream, caught a bunch of fish with my, you know, littlest kids, laid in a hammock. I don't know how to tell you why this brings me life and I'm ready for this week more. Um, walking, I'm rediscovering walking. You mentioned that in the season. Um, it's It's been incredible to think about. So I would encourage you guys almost like this is kind of where meeting... Um, where we kind of meet in the middle between anxiety work and sort of pushing against burnout, replenishment. Um, everybody can create a life-giving list. I mean, it, it doesn't take that much time. You can add to it all the time. So Steve, I think it's one of the most practical things that you give to say, yes, 
Of course, we talk about life-giving activities, but man, when you can name that and go there and have that play, that whimsy, the get to versus the have to, um, I've heard it said, we're great at living out of duty, but we struggle at living out of delight. And so we go to that as leaders, but we, we struggle to. It's so funny. Uh, uh, I first stumbled upon when I was a chaplain, my, my supervisor had walked into his office and he had a sign on the wall and it said, uh, God respects me when I work, but he loves me when I sing. Mm. And, uh, you know, terrible theology, but something, there's something in there. It, I, I do encourage people to, to really get fanatical about the life-giving list because you'll be blown away. It's, it's either things that make you feel like a kid in the kingdom or it's things that connect you to the heart of God. Uh, on my life-giving list is there's a monastery an hour and a half up the road from me with 30 nuns that chant Middle Ages Gregorian chant. I never would have imagined that that would flood my soul with peace, but I've gone up there multiple times and done spiritual retreats. It's on my list. Uh, you'll be blown mm, away by the simple, the simple pleasures. Like you mentioned, fishing with your, your little kids. Almost for sure, you're looking at those kids and you're like, God gave me these kids. Like This is a gift. Yeah. And it, it does something. I've got a, a puppy upstairs. He's been a member of the Cuss family for right about 60 hours now. And uh, he's seven weeks old. I was up with him this morning at 4.45 a.m. And I was literally, he was chewing on my fingers. And I was like, God, thank you. You invented puppies. I don't know <laughs> what you were thinking, but this is amazing. You know, yeah. hard to be anxious with a puppy in your lap. Yeah, man, that's good. Well, I, I want to end with this, uh, burnout. And that becomes kind of a buzzword. We talk about it all the time. Um, at State Fort Designs uh, coaching, we're literally helping leaders avoid it. You have an interesting take on burnout that I really like. Um, why do people burn out? And why do you believe people are at serious risk of burnout right now in this moment? People burn out. I, I think the fallacy of burnout is people think that it has to do with workload. I've got so much on my plate, I'm burning out. Uh, I think that's a fallacy. People burn out, I believe, because of either unaddressed chronic anxiety well, that's why they burn out. And then that can look like a very slow, subtle, behind the scenes, everyone's surprised. Or it can look like, unfortunately, uh, the flame out, the addictions, the secret affairs, where your public life and your private behavior start to get further and further apart. And I, so I call that the slow fade or the crash, right? The kind of yeah. two flavors of it. Yeah. But it's not about workload. Most leaders I know are actually exhilarated by a lot, lot of work. I know in my life, if I don't have a lot to do, I get almost lazy. So I do think we're actually motivated by heavy workload. But it's unaddressed chronic anxiety. If you're a chronic people pleaser and you've had a whole lot of criticism lately, um, if, if you've made some leadership mistakes and they were vulnerable and you're facing a difficult leadership decision and you're saying, I just don't know if I can lead us through this again. I know for me, I came close to burnout when I had grief upon grief upon grief, all of these deaths. And then in our church, we had some other losses and just challenges. And I just thought, I just can't keep putting out because I really believed that I had to be successful and productive, you know, stuff like that. So I think that's why burnout happens. The, the good news about burnout is it's, it's not inevitable. But if you do burn out, I think the good news is there is gospel and grace on the other side of it. Yes. Yep. And I, I know this is your field too, Alan. So, you know, we should be turning the tables and hearing from you. This is really your your area. But I just want people to know that if you have burned out or are burning out, 
there's a whole other kingdom work on the other side of that. Uh, and, and if the idea of kingdom work is absolutely repulsive to you, that's good news too. There's, there's the grace of God is, on, you know, on the other side of death, there really is resurrection. It, it might look entirely different. It might strip you of everything you're holding on to, but God is there. Yeah. Yeah, we, we are resurrection people, you know, and that kernel falls and what's it going to grow into? I personally think I needed to hit it. Not everybody does. I needed to experience. I got to the end of me. Yeah. It was ugly. I was very weak. It, I got there really fast, probably two years of just shy of two years of sprinting. Uh, and it manifested different in me than, than other people. But I love that, Steve, because it's the why underneath the what. Maybe you are working too much. Maybe you are not sleeping enough, but it's probably the belief yeah. that they need 90 hours of me a week or they need me every week in the pulpit. I have to lead every meeting. I can't go on vacation because, and I think, you know, Sabbath is literally punching that in the gut, punching that in the face. It's saying, turns out many weeks, things are actually better when you get out of them versus I have to have this. So I think that can be really helpful for you guys listening. One of my favorite quotes, a guy named David White, and he says, the opposite of burned out is not well rested. It is wholehearted. Mm -hmm. And I think many of us are leading with half of our heart and it is dangerous. And if there's one thing you get out of our conversation today with Steve and I, maybe it's this, you are human, you have limits. And if you violate those and continue to for a long period of time, there will be carnage and the people closest to you will feel that first. And the reality is with anxiety, they're already feeling that, right? They're already feeling my frustration or some of my anger. I already need to apologize to my kids uh, for certain things after this conversation. So thanks for that, Steve. Thanks for being that voice in my life. So grateful for you and for your work and guys, uh, the book of Managing Leadership Anxiety. I don't know anyone else talking about it like Steve. He's also in the trenches uh, and you're well-designed uh, for this. You've lived out many years of the story, but you're also a practitioner. You're sharing yeah. from it before we hit play. Um, you know, you're wrestling through it yourself. So just appreciate you, Steve, your friendship. Where can they find um, resources on managing leadership anxiety and that life-giving list? Yeah, so people can go to stevecostwords.com and they can grab the life-giving list. It's, when they download it, they'll discover it's a dead simple spreadsheet. There's nothing, there's nothing genius in the template I made for you. The genius is going to be when you fill it in and actually practice it. Um, I'm hosting a, a two-hour webinar in June, and I'll send you the link, Alan, if it's helpful for your folks. I think it's 25 or 28 bucks or something. I'm trying to keep it really inexpensive. But it is for people who just want a, a, a little two-hour dive into this whole world. It's going to be interactive. That might be helpful for people. I think it's June 4th, and then it'll be available on demand after that. Um, all of that, I just I sent you the link, and, and people can find me there or on my website. Most of my social media work I do on Twitter. So if people want to follow me on Twitter, that's where I post some thoughts for people as well. Awesome. Well, Steve, thanks for your work. Uh, very kindred to us, uh, what you're doing. Very specific, and uh, turns out it's also very universal right now. We are all wrestling with anxiety. So thanks for speaking into it. Appreciate you, your work and your friendship. Yeah. Always a pleasure, Alan. Thanks for having me on. Man, so helpful. Some of that is so simple, but could be helpful to us to be able to name. What are you feeling right now? What, what emotion are you feeling right now? As Steve said, maybe you're in a storm and just to name, I am in a storm right now and this will pass over. I will not always be in this. 
And Steve gave several helpful practices for you to lean in this week. We are all carrying more than we realize in this season. Make sure to have grace on yourself. Make sure to be kind to yourself and and to others during the season. We need to have grace on others. We are all carrying anxieties. We are doing our best in the midst of it. But I would encourage you to spend some time reflecting. What is making me anxious right now? What is this ambiguity doing to me? This great unknown that we are heading into. Spend some time dialing in on that. Because if we are not self-reflective, if we are not self-responsive, how are we going to lead others? How are we going to be a non-anxious presence, be someone that others desire to follow right now that's going to lead them back to this abundant life that Jesus spoke of and promised us and invited us into? Guys, we love having you track along with the podcast. We're going to continue to bring you timeless messages and, of course, timely ones as well amidst all that we're facing right now. Thanks for joining us for another episode of the podcast. You can catch us every Tuesday and Thursday.